KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, September 10th. San Diego's troubled COVID-19 hotels. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. President Biden says all employees of the federal government must be vaccinated within 75 days, and all employees of contractors that have 100 or more people who work for the federal government must also get the shot or submit to weekly testing. San Diego legal analyst Dan Eaton says lawsuits will be filed. The scope of the executive order concerning uh, vaccination mandate is going to be carefully parsed to see if it overreaches. Biden's order also covers healthcare facilities, entertainment venues, and more, all in an effort to stop the spread of COVID-19. Meanwhile, COVID-19 booster shots could also be available to all Americans within the next two weeks, but there's still more research being done on who exactly needs them. Dr. Eric Topol is the director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. He says data shows boosters will benefit those over 60 and healthcare workers, but we still don't know about younger adults. What about younger people, uh, younger than age 60, who are otherwise, you know, healthy, they don't have a compromised immune system? That's where we don't know yet. And we should know that in the weeks ahead. Topol says the Pfizer booster shots are ready to go and more data is being collected from Moderna about their effectiveness. Heat advisories from the National Weather Service are in effect today for the San Bernardino, Riverside, and San Diego County mountain and valley areas until 9 p.m. tonight. Temperatures are expected upwards of high 90s and in the hundreds in some areas. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Overdoses, suicide, security issues, those are just some of the problems playing out inside COVID-19 quarantine hotels that are being run by San Diego County. And as iNews sources Cody Dulaney reports, officials have been slow to fix the issues with a problem contractor. For five weeks, county supervisors ignored emails and interview requests about mismanagement at hotels used for people with COVID-19. An iNewsource investigation found serious gaps in care by poorly trained staff. Those issues were confirmed in a report by San Diego State. And this week, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher broke his silence. We are reviewing the results uh, of that report and trying to figure out everything we can possibly implement to do better. Can you tell me if there's any interest in reviewing the contract with this company that's been called unqualified, doesn't have proper training for employees? The only thing I, I, I can say is we're assessing every, every legal option we have for how we can do better. The hotels were supposed to be a safety net, but some residents say they became a nightmare. Shira Beam is staying at one hotel managed by the problem company. A lot of people have dependency issues, a lot of people have PTSD. There's a lot of mental health issues here, and they are not equipped or trained to take care of anybody here. The company will continue running the hotels through December, 
And that was iNews Source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. KPBS recently reported on a North County daycare that was ignoring state masking rules and instead allowing parents and kids to choose whether to wear masks or not. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne tells us after that story aired, the daycare changed its policy. On August 12th, Children's Paradise Preschool and Infant Centers sent out an email stating they would be adopting a, quote, parent choice and staff choice approach to masking but that policy violated the state's child care licensing rules. After the KPBS story aired, the school changed its policy. It now says masks are required for all kids ages 2 and up. The State Department of Social Services says they're investigating the daycare. And another backer of the school, Mag Headstart, says they contacted the school after the KPBS story aired. Arnulfo Manriquez is the CEO. Uh, we did contact them and, and, and inform them that that their preschool operations needed to meet all the guidelines that community care licensing um, operates under. He says that all daycare and preschools working with any government-funded programs have to follow state licensing rules or lose funding. And that was KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. A bill has been passed to create a process to strip California police officers of their badges if they're found guilty of certain crimes or serious misconduct. Now it's one step away from becoming law. Cap Radio's Ed Fletcher reports on the bill. Governor Gavin Newsom's signature is the final step in the legislative process for the measure identified as one of the top policing reform priorities that surfaced in the wake of George Floyd's killing. Absence of the legislation, officers convicted of certain crimes or fired for misconduct could still be hired by another department. And under certain circumstances, such as an officer convicted of wrongful death, the bill would no longer shield cops from civil lawsuits. And that was Cap Radio's Ed Fletcher reporting from Sacramento. A plan by two county supervisors might pave the way for people to start selling food from their home kitchens. KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell has more on the business concept they're hoping to bring to San Diego. At the end of the day, uh, we're taking people that would normally uh, have to operate in the gray, and we're giving them a path to operate legally and lift their community. County Supervisors Joel Anderson and Nora Vargas are hoping to make it possible for Mikos to operate in San Diego County. Mikos, also known as Micro Enterprise Home Kitchen Operation, allows people to sell food straight from their kitchen. The homemade food business concept was made possible in the state through the passing of AB 626 and AB 377 in 2018. Permits and licensing to operate are granted on a county-by-county -county basis. Different counties have done different things. Riverside, San Bernardino, they're slightly different, uh, but they've had tremendous success with it. Anderson says Mikos would be regulated through local food agencies. Health permits and a business license would also be required. There are uh, severe caps on this. They can only do 60 meals a week, so we're not talking about competing with your local restaurant. He says Miko's is a stepping stone for those looking to maybe one day open a restaurant. It means so much to me. It means to be able to cook and share my family recipes. Uh, 
serve safe food. Diana Tapiz is the owner and chef of Tres Fuegos Cocina. Tapiz and her husband started selling birria at pop-up events during the pandemic. As demand for their food grew, they decided to rent a commercial kitchen. But the dream quickly came to an end. It's a journey that we were ready to give up on. Not, not give up, but just it, it's hard. It's hard to get those startup costs. Tapiz says getting Amico's business license means being able to continue her family's legacy. My mother's dream was to work in the food industry and open her own small food business. Anderson and Vargas will be introducing Mikos to the Board of Supervisors at its next meeting. And that was KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. Coming up, as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of September 11th, how might our response to those attacks inform this moment in history? This is an era of political warfare that leaves America more starkly divided than any era we've seen before. It almost makes it impossible to imagine that we could come together in the way that we did as a nation after 9-11. That's next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The 9-11 attacks launched two wars, spawned intense fear of foreign terrorism, and unified Americans against a common foe. KPBS's Amitha Sharma explores the collective trauma of that day and how it might inform this moment in our history. First came clues that horror was on its march that September 11th morning 20 years ago. The cockpit is not answering their phone. Our number one has been stabbed and our five has been stabbed. Then, disbelief and shock as the first World Trade Center tower was hit by a plane hijacked by Al-Qaeda terrorists. When the scope of the attack came into view, there was sadness, anger and a warning by then-President George W. Bush that America was ready for retribution. The search is underway for those who were behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. I think the thing that left America so shaken and left me so shaken about 9-11 was not just this horrendous loss of life that we all watch live on TV, but where it happened, right? It, it happened on American soil. UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser says the collective trauma bonded the country. It brought people across political divides together. In many ways, he says our collective response to that day showed our resilience. Americans felt more united 
and more like citizens of a country that had, you know, sure, brought together by this shared trauma. But that sense of collective action, of all-in-it-togetherness, has been elusive during this pandemic, even though COVID has killed more than 650,000 Americans, and even though the pandemic has been a much more collective experience with school and work closures and people getting sick and dying. You look just purely at the numbers, right? We had more people die during many single days of the winter surge than died in all of the September 11th attacks combined. Kauser says the contrast and reaction exposes a difference between who we were then and who we are now. He says we're in an era of hyper-political polarization. This is an era of political warfare that leaves America more starkly divided than any era we've seen before. It almost makes it impossible to imagine that we could come together in the way that we did as a nation after 9-11. UC Irvine psychologist Roxanne Cohen-Silver says another reason 9-11 unified Americans is because the threat was foreign. Those bad people did something to us. Now, you know, we're all perpetrators of the infection. America is fractured today, even though the threat is far bigger. Another reason, says Silver, is because we've lived through trauma after trauma after trauma over the last 20 years. The mass shootings, climate-driven weather catastrophes, the political scandals of former President Donald Trump's administration, the killing of George Floyd, the January 6th insurrection, and of course, the pandemic. She says at some level, people are exhausted. People do become numb to the numbers, but I don't think we became numb to the tragedy. The cascade of tragedies has changed how we view 9-11 today, says Kauser. It may be easy to look back and say, really that puny event? But on the other hand, 9-11 wasn't just one day, right? It set in place a series of things. The war in Afghanistan, our longest war, the war in Iraq. He says as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the country might take a lesson from the unity back then, however brief, to navigate its current divide. It's an opportunity to remember why everyone made those sacrifices, what brought people together at that time, and think about whether some of the things that we're facing today, whether these are traumas on that scale and whether we can get over some of the differences in how we want to lead our daily lives, whether we want to wear a mask, all of those things, get through that, back to that renewed sense of joint purpose. And that reporting from KPBS's Amitha Sharma. Shortly after the attacks, President George W. Bush told the American people this. The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. Bush was applauded for his words at the time, but it didn't stop a wave of hate and harassment directed at Muslims across the U.S. Hate crimes in California jumped more than 15 percent that year, and the number of hate crimes against Muslims and Arabs in America has never returned to pre-9-11 levels. Many local members of the Muslim community found themselves becoming spokespeople for their faith and their community in the years after 9-11. Ten years ago on the anniversary of the attack, KPBS Midday Edition spoke with Marwa Abdallah, a young mother in San Diego who has since gone on to make a career out of building understanding between non-Muslims and the Muslim American community. And they recently welcomed her back to the show. Here she is speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. Last time we spoke, 
You shared what witnessing the TV images of the attacks was like for you as a college student in Texas. Can you share that story again? Sure. Like so many in the United States and and around the world, I watched the events of 9-11 unfold in real time. And as someone who identifies as Muslim, as someone who identifies as an American, you know, I was just horrified. I was a college student at the time. I was and still am a long distance runner, uh, had just finished our morning workout in Texas. And watching that, not only was I horrified at the loss of innocent life, but as the events unfolded and as we came to know about the attacks, I felt like my own faith had been implicated in a way that completely went against everything that I knew of Islam and everything that I had ever heard about my faith and the way that it should be practiced. And on that day, at that time, you made what some might consider a curious choice. You decided to put the headscarf on, the hijab. Why? That's true. That was pretty much the first thing I did upon returning to my dorm room, because I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, I'm not going to allow people who are purporting to act in the name of Islam, speak for Islam and Muslims. I don't think that any person of a minority or marginalized group should be asked to represent their entire group. That's unfair. But for me, it was very important that people knew in that moment that I was Muslim and that this was a very important and salient part of my identity. And that for me, whatever good I was doing on on a personal level, that stemmed from my religious identity. And so making that choice to wear hijab Everyone was very concerned for my safety, but I felt that perhaps was one of the most important things I could do in that moment. And what reaction did you get when people saw you with that headscarf on? You know, I think a lot of people were interested, as you said, in having someone speak on behalf of the Muslim community. And so I began receiving a lot of invitations to speak from the vantage point of a visibly identifiable Muslim woman. And I accepted those invitations. And in the past two decades, That really has become a large part of the work that I do, but the work I do has taken on a much larger role, I believe, because now I'm actually researching some of the systemic factors that play into anti-Muslim discrimination and Islamophobia. What was it like for you when you and your family first moved to San Diego in the years after 9-11? What kind of welcome did you find? You know, I found that San Diego was a very welcoming community. I think that we are blessed to have a lot of diversity in our community and to have efforts at inclusion. Uh, That's not to say that we don't have our problems. You know, nationwide, Muslims are the most likely faith group to report that they have been religiously discriminated against. Half of Muslim families say that their children have been bullied in public schools. And my research in San Diego has shown that we are not immune to those problems. Muslims are discriminated against. They do face a whole host of different types of prejudices and and discrimination. And Muslim children in our school systems do face bullying, both from their peers and from their teachers. You know, Marwa, in a sense, uh, as you say, your immediate reaction after 9-11 to stand up for your faith and your community seems to have been a guiding principle for your career. Can you tell us about your effort to help inform media coverage of Muslim communities? 
Sure. So that has been an area of interest of mine probably since before our last interview. So I've been working on representations of Islam and Muslims in the United States for over a decade. That led me back to the School of Communication at San Diego State University. And I'm now a doctoral student and Jacobs Fellow in the Department of Communication at UC San Diego. And in the context of that work, I've also partnered with the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. And one of the projects that I took on with them was to create a guide for media professionals and journalists on how to cover American Muslims confidently and creatively. Um, you know, Maureen, if a Muslim perpetrator is accused of a violent plot, they receive 770% more media coverage than a non-Muslim counterpart accused of plotting a similar violent act. And Muslim perpetrators who carry out ideologically motivated violence, they receive significantly more media attention. The word terror and terrorism are associated with Muslim perceived perpetrators far more often than they are others, even though law enforcement um, agencies such as the FBI have consistently stated that white supremacists and right wing extremists pose a far greater threat to national security than any other ideologically you know, informed types of violence. And so I think that media coverage does have a lot to do with what Muslim Americans um, are experiencing every day in their lives, the types of discrimination they face. And, and I'm really committed to helping equip journalists cover a very diverse and complex set of communities in the United States. As we face this 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, what remains to be done for Muslims to take their rightful place in American society? You know, 50% of U.S. Muslims um, are native-born. So Islam, you know, is often framed as foreign and other, but Islam is an intricate part, and Muslims have played an intricate role in the building of this country. They are not just, you know, good and bad from the security lens that we often frame them through, but they are doctors, they are um, healthcare workers, teachers, physicists, cab drivers, restaurant owners. You know, they give to philanthropy and they help engage others in their community to solve common problems. And so that perhaps is one of the most important steps that we need to take is, is acknowledging that and then coming together to really challenge bigotry in all of its forms, to challenge these different types of racisms in all of their forms. That was Marwa Abdallah, now a doctoral student at UC San Diego in the Department of Communication. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.